The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 140 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have a privilege to as a result my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past to the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, I truly enjoyed having my buddy Joel Yance on the show last week. We talked about CISOs constantly striving to build effective enterprise cybersecurity programs to keep their companies out of the headlines, as well as how to build an effective cybersecurity program. Joel gave some great advice for CISOs on how to stay relevant with their boards, the impacts of getting incident response wrong, the emerging threats of SaaS, and some insight into his research on the future of forensics and artificial intelligence systems. There was something for everyone last week on episode number 139 of Task Force 7 Radio. That was the future of forensics on artificial intelligence systems on episode 139 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it last week, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere, folks. But for this week, I got to tell you, I'm excited about tonight's show. We've got my good friend, Larson Jensen, coming to the show tonight. Larson is co-founder and managing partner at Harpoon Ventures, a firm that partners with the best of Silicon Valley with U.S. government customers, and is one of Silicon Valley's emerging leaders with a track record of investing in enterprise and consumer IT companies with a particular interest in dual-use startups. Larson began his venture capital career at Andreessen Horowitz and more recently served as a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Prior to his move to Silicon Valley, he was a U.S. Navy SEAL squad commander and cross-functional team leader. He's also two-time Olympian and Olympic medalist in swimming. He holds degrees from the University of Southern California and Stanford Graduate School of Business, and his company has a cool slogan, folks, those who dare win. It's my pleasure to introduce co-founder and managing partner at Harpoon Ventures, former Navy SEAL and two-time Olympian. Mr. Larson Jensen. Larson, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Hey, thanks, Andy. Good to catch up with you, man. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, man. It's been a long time. You know, it's funny. You know, I was thinking about before you were going to come in here tonight, you know, we met so randomly, right? And, um, you know, when you, you just meet some people where it just sticks over time, right? So I've appreciated watching you grow. Uh, your progress has been amazing. Um, but I got, I got to go back to some of the early days, brother, and, you know, because for me, it's just, it's amazing for, you know, people who have a platform, take advantage of that platform and keep building on top of it, opportunity after opportunity, you've been able to do that. You know, you come out of the Olympic pool in Beijing, they hand you the flowers, and the next thing you know, you're giving the flowers to the first lady of the United States. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing up the, you know, platform concept. And it's something that, you know, I'm pretty passionate about. You know, I will say that it's something that I, it was not intentional in my case. It's so much of this is just, you know, seeing some opportunity and making, you know, hopefully not bad choices. It doesn't necessarily need to be a perfect one, but make as good of a choice as you can leveraging some of the experiences that you've, you know, each person's been fortunate to have or organization's been fortunate to have. Um, but to your specific point, yeah, I, I swam in 2004, 2008 Olympics, and 
Uh, although I placed better in 2004, 2008 was definitely the special one for me. Uh, and it happened through, uh, and the reason largely that was is because I, I was given a bouquet of flowers after I finished third and got a bronze medal and uh, was paraded around the pool with the other medalists. And President Bush and his wife, Laura, were there. And uh, I walked up the bleachers and handed over the railing, the flowers, to, to Laura. And I think it's something that I did sort of spontaneously at the time. Uh, didn't even know that you know, him or her were going to be there. Uh, but ultimately it led to sort of like a snowball of other, you know, positive developments that no one could ever, ever predict. Yeah, man, it's, it's so fun. I, I, you know, so, so, yeah, man, I look, I remember you wanting to make the transition into the seals and, you know, you, you needed a reference, (laughs) (laughs) you needed a reference to get in. Right. Tell me how you lever. You know, you get invited to the White House. You go sit in the Oval Office. You sit with President Bush, and tell me about that conversation. Yeah, it, it was pretty surreal in the first place to get a letter in the mail that just has the return address saying, you know, the White House. I imagine you know everyone knows the address, and you know, at least the post office does. Um, so um, it had a number on it. Said, you know, give me a ring when you're in town. I appreciate your your generosity. Uh, to, you know, to, that's basically the highlights of what it said. And so I gave it a call and ended up stopping by a few weeks later, which is remarkable to say you're going to the White House to meet with the president, something one of my most treasured moments to this day. Uh, but it, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head again. Uh, president Bush you know, alluded to if I needed a reference, a letter of recommendation to get into the SEALs, uh, that he'd be happy to write one. Um, and so I obviously you know, thanked him for that, that kindness of his, you know, that, that gesture. But I felt that I already had a pretty big target on my back. Uh, you know, everyone sort of like jokingly wants to be the gray man, so to speak, going through SEAL training. You don't want to stand out for good reasons. And you don't want to stand out for bad reasons because either way, you know, it, it leads the instructor staff to zero in on you like a hawk searching for its prey. And so I didn't want to stand out any more than I felt like I already might. Um, but I, you know, leading forward into my first day down in Coronado and SEAL training, we were going on this beach run. You know, we had probably about 100 or so you know, trainees at the time going through that class in that first day. And sure enough, on the bullhorn from one of the trucks that was following us, they say, hey, hey Olympian, raise your hand. And so that was probably, you know, 10 minutes into that first run that I did or less. And, you know, anytime so I talk to any of my buddies on the teams and I reference your name, I, they go, oh, you mean the Olympian? Yeah. <laughs> so if it, was, if it was the Olympian and, oh, wait, the president's buddy. Yeah. You know, you get it, right? You well, yeah, it. You're, you'd be in for it. I, I always got some yeah. quote unquote extra attention. Yeah, uh, you right. know, it was a, hey, you get some extra benefit as they call it. I know, it. right? That's like yeah, I tell my kids, you're going to fly below benefit. the radar. Just yeah, yeah. Below the radar, right? yeah, you need to go to bed if you're if you're below the radar. We don't know. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so tell me, man. Like, look, there's a whole bunch of guiding principles in the you know in the mindset and lifestyle of an Olympian. I mean, it's just it's a pure thing. And you, know, you look at today's world, and you know, it, with you know professional sports, um, but it, the Olympics just has something different about it. Tell me about that experience and just the kind of what do they indoctrinate you as an Olympian, you know, in terms of how you represent the country? Sure. Uh, and I, I agree. I think it is one of those unique events that happens, you know, every four years. And unfortunately it got postponed this year as so many things did uh, that really draws the world together uh, in a very unique way. And it's sort of reminiscent of, you know, ancient times where literally wars would stop to appreciate, you know, the, the human condition uh, which I think is so unique that you know everyone can appreciate that regardless of background, regardless of nationality, regardless of upbringing. Everybody sort of stops and admires it. Uh, and so that's, I think, one thing that it really sticks with me about Olymp- the Olympics specifically. You know, athletics obviously has a whole bunch of things that uh, sort of underwrite a lot of this. But the Olympics is something that really uh, is a tear-jerking experience and because everyone sort of sees themselves and the athletes that are competing and in many times failing on the playing field. And everyone starts to learn of the stories of what it takes to get there. And uh, again, as everyone knows, you know, the Olympics are every four years, every two, you know, with, with counting the Winter Olympics. And it's just the highlights of somebody's career. And it's easy to, at a knee-jerk, say, oh, this person's a great athlete, you know, and that's that. 
but everybody goes to the doldrums. Uh, I like to say that there's more times, vastly more times, 90% of the time that I was training and in competition, it was miserable. You know, I was embracing the suck to use a military term. Uh, it was hard. Uh, and you just hope that you can prepare yourself for when the moment's right, uh, which is, you know, that short, brief stage to the Olympic Games. And I think what's so unique about it is the Olympics brings out that story, that, uh, that understanding that it's not just the highlights, it's the lowlights as well that make a person who they are. Uh, and that's why I think it's so compelling. You know, you've referenced two things, right, that I think are great, which, you know, embrace the suck and then, you know, prepare for that moment, right? And, and that's certainly part of the Olympic training from what you know what you described, but it's also transferable to the battlefield, right? Absolutely. Tell, tell me what it was like to go from, you know, wearing the USA swim cap, you know, to, to SEAL team, you know, uniform, body armor, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, huge transition, I guess, at a high level. But um, I guess on a very day-to-day level, it was – pretty simple. Uh, I, I don't want to trivialize it, but you know, anytime you make a career shift, it is hard. Uh, you see it all the time. I see it all the time with athletes who are trying to get into something new. I see it all the time with transitioning military veterans, you know, going into something different. You sort of have to reinvent yourself. And you know, Andy, you, you probably experienced it yourself as well. I mean, you have to reinvent yourself to a certain extent, new, learn a new language, learn a new skill set. And I think it, it becomes, you know, interestingly, uh, even more hard for somebody that's reached, let's call it Olympic caliber or something, to re-humble yourself and go back to those uh, first principles of how you got there in the first place. It's, you know, a totally different mindset to, you know, have the advantage and keep the advantage, like maybe I would have had if I was in the pool, even though I was never, you know, truly the best of the best, but I was, I was up there, um, but to start over from, from zero. So I think what was interesting about it, my point with this is by joining the military, everybody joins at zero. You know, everybody joins as being, you know, you name the cliche movie that you can watch where you're going to boot camp or the equivalent of, you know, in my case, OCS, um, where you're just treated like, you know, you don't matter. And then you sort of like are built up from scratch. And so uh, interestingly, I found it to be a really organic way to you know, re-humble myself and, you know, with the goal of joining a really special community. And I think that lesson right there has served me very well um, and serves others very well if they, if they can adopt it as they do a, a career shift, you know, just like the one that I did out of the military as well. Yeah, man. So look, I remember being at the RNC. There you are getting ready to go on stage, right? You know, we talked yeah. before about you wanted to go into politics, right? So you go Olympics, we're going to go SEAL, you're going to go into politics, and then you come out of the SEAL, you come out of the teams, you're like, you know what? I want to head down the investment game route. Yeah. Tell me about that shift. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's no shortage of seeing people fail and needing to be resilient, um, you know, in that, you know, than, it, than there is in the venture capital space. So give me, give me a little bit of how that progressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Failure, I think, is ultimately the story of my life. And I think it's the story of everybody's life when you get down to it. It's just like, can you rise above those and, you know, continue working hard and overcoming, you know, the adversity? And that's something that they teach you, like, you know, indoctrinate you in the SEAL community day in and day out. And I think I was fortunate to have that from some pretty old school, hard coaches in the swimming pool that, you know, just trained me to, to think like that. Um, and I, I think it's interesting now where I'm in a profession in the venture capital space that it's sort of like baseball level statistics. I mean, if you can bat 300, you're going to be a hall of famer. Um, most company starting a company unsurprisingly is very hard. Most of them fail. Uh, everybody has ideas. Executing on them is difficult. Convincing people to buy your product is difficult. Really differentiating in the noise is difficult. Uh, and that's why the failure rate is, is so high. Uh, the job of, in the venture capital industry, the job of venture capitalists is to, you know, try and identify signal in the noise and those right key ingredients of a standout team uh, working in a standout market with a you know, significant uh, advantage with the business, uh, preferably a technical moat around the business that makes it really, really difficult for anybody else to, uh, to compete or ultimately catch up. Um, so you know, I, we're going to dig into that man. The next time I need to take a quick break, man, a transition for our, sure. for our commercial break here. So, Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF seven radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF seven radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF seven family on your favorite social media platform. 
For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for a topic or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. Really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with co-founder and managing partner at Harpoon Ventures, Larson Jensen. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or google signet s-i-n-e-t you can't see it you can't smell it you can't taste it but it can bankrupt your company it's internal risk insider fraud ethics violations and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis don't be one of them the corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with co-founder and managing partner of Harpoon Ventures, Larson Jensen. Hey, bud, I got to ask you, um, those who dare win. Great slogan. Yeah. Tell me how it came Thank up. you. Thank you. Well, uh, it, it speaks to us, I guess, is the short way to, to say it. I mean, it has its roots in a British SAS uh, slogan. Uh, 
those who dare win is something that really, I think, encapsulates uh, how we think about uh, investing. Uh, it can be a little bit misleading that just by daring, you're, you're going to win. Uh, that's certainly not the case, obviously. But if you're not going to dare greatly, you're, you're not going to achieve greatly. And any great company, any great undertaking, whether it be personally or professionally, comes with a great degree of uncertainty and, you know, risk that needs to be calculated and weighed, you know, carefully. Um, I think that that's, you know, ultimately how I've thought about some of my major career decisions in the past, whether it be swimming or in the military or, or thereafter. And I think it's how we think about, you know, assessing the entrepreneurs that we invest in and the teams that we're trying to back. Uh, we're not trying to back those that aren't daring greatly, that aren't trying to achieve something really tremendous that otherwise wouldn't exist without them. Uh, so we're really, this is a slogan to consider not only how we think about our past, but how we consider, you know, thinking about uh, the teams that we're trying to back. Yeah, no, it's good. So, so man, look, when you started Harpoon, you know, you, you had to go raise your own cash, right? And start the fund from scratch. So tell me a little bit about the lessons learned, you know, from going through your own fundraise. Man, I, I just, we could do a whole podcast series on the lessons learned and the mistakes. <laughs> we'll we'll have you back then, brother. We'll have you back. Yeah, for, for, for raising money for your own fund. Um, but at a high level, I, I think that we've done an okay job. Um, and, and what we've done essentially is, you know, we, we've raised a, a small fund. Uh, we had the backing of some really amazing uh, folks that I used to work with who sort of staked us and took a chance on us. So really getting that initial vote of confidence from people who are very experienced in the space, uh, who understood our thesis. Uh, we felt that we need to build something that was clearly differentiating, uh, which just like in the cybersecurity market, I mean, it's hard to differentiate in the venture market, in the venture capital market. There's literally about a thousand funds out there these days. and you know, Entrepreneurs need to sort their way through that. On, on one hand, it's probably never been a better time to be an entrepreneur to go out and raise money because the options abound. But on the other hand, comes confusion and complexity and navigating that, that, that convoluted ecosystem. I would say it's the same thing. You're looking for LPs, limited partners to invest, invest in, a, in a fund. Uh, and so being somebody who's relatively new to the ecosystem, been only working in it for the past you know, five or six years, with a pretty non-traditional background, I would say there's you know, an uphill battle for a lot of those things. But I'd say the key ingredients for us is you know, clear differentiation, uh, getting some quote-unquote early adopters, in our case, early adopter LPs, to uh, validate and reference us and say what we're doing is actually useful and could make a difference, uh, and, and then sort of performing thereafter and ensuring that we're actually you know, hitting what we set out to do. Uh, and then over time, it's certainly built from there. Um, what I didn't mention is how many no's we've got. I mean, we got so many no's. And I'm not, yeah, it's almost becoming like a, a bragging point. And it just takes a lot of time to refine the narrative, use the feedback that you get and not take it personally and take it as an opportunity to adjust the narrative. Uh, one of my business school professors and you know, founder of Benchmark, uh, he's now the CEO and co-founder of Wealthfront, uh, a fintech company. He says, don't, great teams don't, and great entrepreneurs don't change what they do. They change how they describe it. If you really have a technological inflection point and you really have invented or created something new, it's all about finding that product market fit. And I think we've adapted you know, that narrative or that thought process to fundraising for our venture fund. Interestingly, we, we never really changed what we did. We just changed how we described it because there's different ways that are, you know, it can be received. Man. So that's, uh, I hear that a lot, right? That, you know, people saying like, you gotta, you gotta find the right pool of investors that fit, you know, your need. And I think you and I have talked about, you know, investment strategies, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you're going out trying to weed through the noise and the, the large pool of potential options, you know, um, to seek investment, right? So if you're, you know, how do, how do entrepreneurs find you, right? And, and what's the advice you'd give them in terms of what you're looking for? Sure. Uh, so much of the venture industry is referral and network based. So, uh, you know, I think as a starting point, it's really cultivating that 
that right network. And it sort of makes sense. I mean, you, you probably trust your friend's restaurant recommendations more than you trust a stranger's recommendation because you understand your friend's taste and it may align with yours or not align with yours, you know, conversely. And so, so much of how we think about investing is through network uh, based referrals. And, you know, frankly, when founders are diligencing whether or not they should work with us, they go based on referrals and, you know, talk to the founders we've invested in, understand the experience, understand other co-investors we have invested alongside. Um, so I would say that's probably the key ingredient that I've, I've learned as an entrepreneur is, you, you know, if you don't have that network yet, uh, building into it is extremely important because it's hard to go from a cold start. It's hard to go from zero to one uh, without having, you know, that, that, you know, cross-reference ability of, of the investor network. It's very important on the sales side as well to get to get traction. Um, and so as we think about our strategy, it's, it's uh, you know, we looked at the data and we understood that the vast you know, preponderance of venture capital industry returns go back to the same, uh, you know, I guess, echelon of venture capital firms uh, over time historically. And it's really hard to break into that upper echelon. Uh, so rather than us go and try and compete directly with that upper echelon of firms, uh, we decided that we want to create a, a strategy that allows us to partner. And our strategy is that we help the companies we work with break into a market that historically they have a difficult time breaking into, which is the federal, federal government market. Uh, so we're bringing together my, my background and my co-founder's background of prior military expertise and understanding, um, but more specifically how that overlaps with early stage technology. We, we offer that as an insight. Uh, so put put plainly, we're not trying to go out and lead our own independent deals. We're trying to create a, a model that incentivizes those that organically have that network established and already see the best deal flow in the world, arguably, uh, where we can participate at the same terms alongside them uh, in some of those deals. And that's really how we've structured our fund. Yeah, I mean, you guys get to invest in a lot of cool stuff because you're bringing, you know, government ideas or bringing ideas to the government. I mean, it's a fun space to try to blend and, you know, merge the two worlds. You know, when you're looking at, you know, a proposed team, you know, to invest or, you know, potential opportunity to invest in, how important is the team as opposed to the idea? I think that's a great question. And there's so much to unpack there. And we actually had a, I don't want to say debate, but a pretty lengthy discussion this morning with, with our own investment team thinking about some of the opportunities we're seeing. And it really came up, somebody said like, what's the most important thing to you, Lars? And they asked me basically this question today. I'm like, team, hands down. Um, but that's because I think team encapsulates everything else. If you have an amazing team uh, that is coming out of a really underserved market where there's a massive opportunity, they have domain expertise in it, They've you know, perhaps already built some amazing technology in that space previously. They have an insight as to where the gap is and where the opportunities are. They maybe are coming from an organization that has already agreed to be one of their first customers as they start their startup. Uh, I think team just actually, you know, when said differently or thought about differently, checks almost every other investment uh, criteria box if you really find the special teams. You know, they solve the market opportunity, they solve the technology differentiation, uh, they solve the, the network question about fundraising. Uh, it's just a question of then like execution. And, you know, that's obviously something that can be, I would say, de-risked if they've previously executed on a startup and had a, you know, a, a reasonably successful outcome previously. Um, so team for me is, is the handed down most important thing. But I think just you can't look at it just on resume. You have to look at it based on the broader context of the market opportunity, the technology innovation, et cetera. Now, how much do you think being on the teams influenced that, Rick? So, I mean, I think we always just say, I'd rather go to battle with four, five, six like-minded, similarly trained people that are bought into the mission, bought into each other than, uh, you know, just about 150 people that don't, you know, know anybody, don't know each other. They're not tr They're all trained differently. Right. H how much of that, you know, that you took out of the teams um, factors into your thought process here as an investor? A lot. I mean, every day, um, you know, maybe it's cause I'm just getting off this kick of watching the last dance on ESPN, the Michael Jordan documentary, but I think there's a great example of, of team there. You got a so team good. that works together and you have an all-star like in Michael Jordan. that's just like the best of all time, the greatest of all time. And you know, you, you can't, you, you could put a thousand 
uh, elementary school or high schoolers or whatever uh, weekend warriors up against the Chicago Bulls. They just like stomp them. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there is this asymmetric talent advantage in, uh, in business and specifically in early stage technology businesses. There is coders and technologists out there uh, that are the Michael Jordan of their domain. The hard part is really finding them and identifying that talent. And they, they, they tend to come as a group. They tend to know other people that are really good. Let's put it this way. If, you, if anybody who's watched that documentary knows that Jordan didn't want anybody who wasn't up to his standard on the team. And so really finding the CEO that can build you know, the 1990s era Chicago Bulls around them uh, while being a player and a coach sort of simultaneously is really, uh, I think, a key component of, of what we're doing. So, man, how, how has, you know, the current pandemic impacted the VC, you know, investment community? You know, are dollars still out there? Like, what's going on? Oh, I don't think anybody knows. And maybe that's not an answer that you wanted to hear, but I think there's so many people out there who are full of opinions, but at the end of the day, I don't think anybody knows. And I think therein lies the challenge is, is uncertainty. Um, I had a piece of advice given from one of our investors the other day who's been you know, an investor for, for decades. He says, right now, if you have time, buy it, um, which you know, can lead you to come to a whole lot of other conclusions. But you know, I think it's that, that pithy comment is, I think, really representative of what's going on right now, that uncertainty uh, makes it difficult to place bets one way or another. I think it makes it difficult for customers to prioritize new solutions. I mean, the old adage is that nobody buys anything from a startup unless they're truly desperate. Well, why would you? You could go to an industry incumbent who's doing something and like, you know, generally solving the pain. So the pain has to be so great, so out, outstandingly huge that somebody in a buying position is going to take a chance, perhaps their job uh, to, to go out and purchase that solution. So if the, if the pain isn't big enough, nobody's going to buy it. Right now, it just seems like there's pain that's in other places versus technology adoption. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, remote work, uh, things like what we're operating on, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, like, you know, uh, video chats and, you know, Slack and things like that. Those are obviously just ballooning in usage, uh, but that's because everyone's desperate. Um, but for the traditional, I guess, enterprise solution, uh, really hard right now, hard for an enterprise to prioritize um, when they're laying off their employees. Really hard to do. And so I find part of that fascinating, right? Because I, I do believe that there's some truth in being able to work with some of the startups that are in a position to help mold, you know, for, for you as an enterprise to help mold a solution to the fit your needs early on, right. um, as opposed to waiting until they're so big that they can't you know, customize something for you without a change order or, you know, so are you seeing, you know, with the companies that you're invested in and I've, you know, I've had the pleasure of chatting with a few and they're really great. And, you know, are you um, seeing companies say, Hey, look, let's take advantage of this time to be a partner and work with your startups to mold the product so that they're, they're not having to leverage maybe as much investment into the product, but are able to get, you know, mold product direction and get some additional value out of it. And at the same time, your startups are getting um, industry insight, use cases, uh, that kind of thing. Are you seeing any of that? Absolutely. And I think that the best entrepreneurs do that organically anyways. You know, maybe there's the anomaly out there that, you know, just knows what the market needs so badly and they could just go into their garage and just code it out and build it. Um, but that's sort of the anomaly, maybe, you know, deep, deep, deep domain expertise. Um, but still, you need to have informed customer feedback and you need to have that tight relationship with your early customers that allow you to iterate on the product. And I think this is a great time for that, to be honest, you know, without putting the, per you know, the screws on a purchasing decision. It, frankly, what you just mentioned is a large part of the narrative we encourage our companies to provide when they're talking to you know, federal stakeholders at DOD or other folks as, as, a, as a potential customer. And I think it's one of those things that's you know, led to a lot of challenges. You know, a lot of incumbents in the defense space have gotten you know, fat and happy by virtue of them just building something that's really big and really expensive and you know, perhaps really bespoke, but hard, really hard to change. You know, after the fact, really hard to change. I think that's one of the key advantages of a startup is their ability to be agile and nimble and adapt 
with you know, real bona fide customer needs. Um, but you know, another piece of I, 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 when I talk to other VCs in this ecosystem, I, I constantly ask them a lot of these same questions you're asking me. I got a really interesting piece of feedback from one of the partners over at Sequoia recently where he said he's encouraging his companies to stop selling right now. And I've, it's something that stuck with me. I'm like, well, what do you mean stop selling? He's like, people are not thinking about buying anything. These customers will appreciate it if they come back and, you know, realize that, you know, as a vendor, you took care of them. You perhaps gave them, you know, a free license for a handful of months for something just to use it and just were with them during these challenging times. People remember that. And I think it's very similar to, you know, people remember it if you got their back on the battlefield or in other situations of hardship. I think it's something that vendors could, you know, actually take to heart here as well. And instead of really just, you know, putting the screws to somebody to try and buy from you, say, guess what? I've got you. I've got your back. You know, use my solution free of charge. and We'll figure something out later. Um, I don't think enough people are doing that. And I frankly never even considered it until this somebody who's very, very, very uh, experienced in the space gave, gave me that advice. So, so what do you think are the, you know, are, are there any bubbles coming in cyber investment? I mean, it feels like, you know, you hear it, you know, there's a bubble, there's a bubble, it's going to pop. What's the word out, out West? You know, what are you hearing? What, what's your prediction? I don't know if I have a great one uh, other than there's still there's I think that great teams have time diversification across, you know, all cycles and most segments. Um, I think you know, there is a lot of talk out there about this, just the venture capital ecosystem as a whole being overheated prices being driven up. Um, but there's a lot of things that changed. I mean, you look at the FANG stocks, like big tech is you know, reaching trillion dollar, you know, uh, market caps. That's never happened. You look at the, you know, S&P 500, just the percentage of that on a market cap basis that's leveraged to technology. I mean, 20 years ago, it was, you know, oil and gas and you know, manufacturing things like GE. You know, I grew up like admiring Jack Welch and all that. Now it's, it's vastly different. So I think that, you know, if you just read the tea leaves, technology is, you know, really becoming the major sector of the global economy. And so within that, you know, cyber and security broadly, you know, plays a very important role. Um, and so I, whereas it's, I think it's easy to, to say that there's a lot of investment in it, maybe too much investment, it's because there's a lot of opportunity. We're becoming more connected than we've ever, you know, been before. Uh, there's, it's not going the other way. And so right. I think that really finding those, those startups that are able to secure the next generation platform is, is, is a challenge. And a lot of people are placing bets there and a lot of them are going to go wrong. Again, remember like in the VC space, this is, you know, it's baseball averages. You, you bat 300, you go to the hall of fame. A lot of these are going to fail, but some of these are going to really, you know, be, be, you know, stand the test of time and be really important, uh, you know, public, publicly traded companies in the next 10 years. Yeah, and there's no real clear winner right right now. So there's everyone's dumping cash in a bunch of different you know different horses that are just coming up to the up to the starting gates, right? So it's uh, it's going to be a fun thing to watch. All right, folks, we got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, co-founder and managing partner at Harpoon Ventures, Larson Jensen. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, co-founder and managing partner at Harpoon Ventures, Larson Jensen. All right, man, I ask every serviceman and woman that joins the show who made the transition from government to the private sector, what advice can you give your fellow servicemen and women who are making the transition out of the government? This probably is another multi-episode answer, uh, so I'll do my best. Transition is challenging, and I think it it doesn't matter what kind of transition you're undertaking, in my opinion. I I mentioned earlier that I was lucky to transition once from the playing field to the battlefield, so to speak, Um, and I think that the military does a good job of making that transition natural for you. They take care of everything, and so coming out of the military is particularly different because you know, there's so much organizational infrastructure in place that you just come to not appreciate. I mean, everything is taken care of for you um, to a certain extent. Um, And so really having this buffet of options, which is the private sector and understanding where you fit in and where, what culture you belong to and where you can add unique and differentiated advantages is really challenging. Uh, And so for me, I think it just comes down to, uh, eating a big slice of humble pie and recognizing that uh, it's going to be a journey and recognizing that you don't need to make the perfect end of your life, you know, last job you'll ever have decision when making that transition. I think that's an area where I totally failed in my early days getting out is I assumed that that exact next job that I was going to take was going to be the one that I would have forever. And that's just not how it's turned out. And I don't think it's how it turns out for anybody. And so if I had to give my former self some advice, I would tell myself to take a little bit of a chill pill and enjoy the journey as best you can. And obviously that's hard because everybody's got to put food on the table and take care of the family and all that stuff. And everyone wants to feel intrinsically fulfilled and part of a community again. Um, But just, you know, embracing the journey and enjoying it the best you can, uh, I think is the piece of advice I'd give myself um, because it, it doesn't need to be perfect that first time. And as with everything in life, it's a journey to get there. Tell me a little bit about the assessment process, right? I feel like, you know, most folks, when I mentor folks coming out of the government or the military, 
they don't truly have a sense of how their skills are transferable. Um, how did that play out for you? And, uh, you know, how would you advise people to think about that? Well, yeah, I'm not sure if you actually, you knew this or not. We actually invested in a company that helps people do that, a company called Shift that's actually been helping people, primarily uh, service members, transition out of the military and into technology jobs, you know, largely in Silicon Valley, and do a lot of that translation for them. There's a whole lot of infrastructure that's now in place that they're helping people benefit from that allow people to upskill during their you know, terminal leave as they're getting out of the military as they're going into a new private sector job. I mean, it's a big problem that you know, faces our service members these days, and they're doing a great job by you know, really uh, increasing the amount of uh, people who are upskilled, learning new skills, learning how to code, and getting placed into some of these organizations. And so um, I, I think there's companies like that that can be you know, a value add to people as they're making the transition. Um, but it, it is hard because, you know, I think there's, there's intangibles that everyone I think would agree, uh, in our society that the military exceeds that performance under pressure, leadership, management, working as a team, you know, taking feedback on board and improving and all of that. Um, and, but there's also a whole host of very hard skills that people learn as well. And I think uh, service members tend to over-index to the soft skills um, because that's just culturally what the military, uh, I guess, espouses to. You know, the Navy's you know slogan, for example, is honor, courage, commitment. It's not, you know, uh, ship code, for example. You know, and so it, it, just when you have like those organizational priorities that I think are very altruistic, you tend to be measured on those much more than you know a, a tangible skill set. Um, so I think a lot of people underestimate the skills they actually have and where they can be applied. Uh, and so I think just thinking, you know, critically about, you know, what are the skill sets you have? Um, but I think that adaptability that everybody coming out has and thrives in, especially in a combat zone, can be applied to, you know, a new type of combat, combat zone, which is, you know, going into a new corporate environment that you're under, unfamiliar with, and getting the lay of the land and doing your best to, to navigate that organization. Yeah, I, you know, I found it interesting when I was making the transition myself, it took a while to talk about the accomplishments that the teams I was a part of, right, were, and talk about them as if, you know, not that they were mine, right, but just kind of talking about them in general as accomplishments, right? Now, you, you, you were in the pool, and, and of course, you know, that, that your, your medals, so I think, were primarily off of individual, you know, achievement, right? So, you may have had that early on in your, you know, with your Olympic career and your successors, so yeah, I want a, a bronze medal, right? But mm -hmm. how did that change coming out of the teams, you know, the, you know, special ops and the SEALs where, you know, your, your, your success was team success and now you're out of the government and you're having to talk about, you know, you as an individual as opposed to the team. I think that's one of the biggest things that all special operators struggle with as they get out. And it, it's, it's really easy to throw rocks at a glass house, I like to say. You know, when you're in the community, you're in the tribe day to day, you know, and you see guys who get out and you know, maybe write a book or what have you about the experience, it's easy to, you know, cast a lot of, you know, I guess, shade their way. And I, I tend to agree with that. Like anybody that presents, you know, what they've done as a part of their own individual accomplishments, you know, I think deserves the shade. But at the same time, you know, unfortunately, I think that just the culture creates something where uh, you're not supposed to even acknowledge what you do. I mean, sort of the, the way people talk about it is like, well, it's, and my wife makes fun of me for this because when I was still in, people would ask me like relatives or whatever that I'd meet, like, what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm in the military. Then they'd say, well, what do you do in the military? Like, oh, I'm in the Navy. Then what do you do in the Navy? Well, oh, it turns out I, well, I do stuff on land. And they're like, well, that seems weird for the Navy. It's like, well, are you, oh, I'm actually a SEAL. So it takes like five times them to ask the question <laughs> know. you know, to say what I could have just said in the first one. And so it's sort of ridiculous when you put it in that, in that context, like, well, that's like, are you Jason Bourne? What are you doing? It's so, um, funny. so, so, yeah, it's so funny I think that, you know, I, I think that like, it's just like, it's nothing, you know, it's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. It's everything to be a to be proud of, but I'm not trying to go out there and take credit for, for any of the brave accomplishments of my, you know, my former teammates at all, but to just like make it awkward like that, I think doesn't do anybody any, any yeah. favors. I certainly lived it. I just totally would not, 
not acknowledging. So now I'm, I'm pretty open about it. That's, I mean, it's a part of my past. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I was lucky to have the opportunity to work with so many amazing people. And, you know, I think it's informed how I, how I think about the world. I mean, but I'm certainly not making a living off of, you know, my, my brave colleagues backs, like I'm doing other things, you know, and I, I I'm really appreciative to have the context that I, that I now have. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say people, people, a lot people should be open to admitting it. It's not like you were, you know, I don't know, some spy or something. It's so funny you say that, man, because I just remember my, like my wife, she like, okay, we're going out tonight. Like, what are you using as your job? What's your cover tonight? Like, you know, like, <laughs> say it, right? Like, just yep. like some nights you don't want to talk about it, right? Or you don't even want to entertain yeah. it, or you just want to be out and you just want to hang, like, and not even think about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just remember nights, you know, I go like, yeah, hey, I'm an accountant. And, she, and people go, well, you don't seem like an accountant. <laughs> like, yeah. well, no, I, you know, it just pays the bills. It just pays the bills. Yeah. You know, it's the worst when you meet somebody else who's actually an accountant. I've yeah. tried that too. And you can't, you, can't, you, know. you can't speak about any of it. I know. I totally get it. I can picture your wife sitting there go, come on, dude. Make this yeah. easier for me. It's already hard enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's hard enough for her to live with me day to day. I'm making it even worse. So. <laughs> I love it. So, look, man, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Um, you know, we got to catch up soon. We're, we're long overdue for some pancakes. So I agree. Let's catch up soon, brother, in person now when everything slows down. And uh, I appreciate, you know, everything you're doing for, uh, your, you know, the investment community, but, you know, more specifically to keep, you know, the mission going um, in your current role. Um, I know you're not losing sight of that. And so uh, thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Uh, let me know if you guys need anything. All right, folks. All right, folks, it's time for us to pass up on out of here. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.